Is wine losing its soul? Well, it certainly risks losing its soul because it becomes about the imaging more than the wine itself. With at least some celebrity wines, it could be from anywhere. It could be made by anyone. It could come out of a big tank. Gerard Breton is famous in France as a winemaker, but also he's even more famous as a rugby player. He played on the national rugby team. So he's a big guy. I came up to him and I said, you know, Gerard, when I first heard about your wines, I thought that this was just celebrity wine. And then he rose up. <laughs> but of course, then I tasted the wines. And this was an honest thing. And many of the wines are so expressive of place. There were some of the very best wines that I had had when we toured through the south of France. a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 188. Which three forces have shaped the evolution of the modern wine market more than any others? What is a wine economist? And how have both the wine industry and wine buyers evolved over the past 10 years? And how does that impact the wines you drink? You'll hear those tips and more in my chat with Mike Viseth, the wine economist who has just published a new book this week called Wine Wars 2, The Global Battle for the Soul of Wine. Now, on a personal note, before we dive into the show with the continuing story of publishing my new wine memoir, The Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Depression, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. The two most important sentences in any book are the first and last. The first is an invitation to journey with the author, and the last brings the book to a full conclusion. I also think of the opening line like the spot where the arrow is released. And if the trajectory is true throughout the book, it lands at the end where it should. Here are examples from two of my favorite books, starting with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Quote, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. End quote. And then she ends with, quote, they were both ever sensible of the warmest gratitude toward the persons who, by bringing her into Derbyshire, had been the means of uniting them. End quote. Ah, I just get all fluttery when I read Jane Austen. All right, book number two is by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's his Great Gatsby. And it begins with, quote, In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since, end quote. And the last line is, quote, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne ceaselessly back into the past, end quote. 
I love the full circle nature of those lines. Now, I'm in no way comparing myself to these great authors, but I did take inspiration from them with the first and last sentences in the memoir, which starts with, I wake to the smell of burning and finishes with, my voice is on fire. Do you have a favorite opening or closing line from a book? Let me know. I'll share a beta reader review with you now from Jen Gailey in New York City. Quote, this was a lovely read. It's a great book for anyone, especially women navigating divorce and business as a solopreneur, and of course, anyone who loves wine. Natalie's experience helped me rethink my own business trials and tribulations through a less intimate lens and put them in perspective. There's a lot of relatability to her relationship dynamics and to the slow unraveling of a relationship over time. I love all the witchy references. I like the pace and found it easy to read. I love the insight into her writing process and sharing about being an introvert and how she's used this as her superpower to connect one-on-one with winemakers. I'm stealing that perspective. End quote. Thank you, Jen. I've posted a link to a blog post called Diary of a Book Launch in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 188. And this is where I share more behind the scenes stories about the journey of taking this memoir from idea to publication. If you want a more intimate insider seat beside me on this journey, please let me know you'd like to become a beta reader and get a sneak peek at the manuscript. Email me at natalie at nataliemclean.com. Okay, on with the show. Mike Viseth is editor of the Wine Economist newsletter and author of more than a dozen books, including Around the World in 80 Wines, Money, Taste, and Wine, It's Complicated, and of course, the newly published Wine Wars 2, The Global Battle for the Soul of Wine. He's won many awards for his work, including the Gourmand International Award for Best Wine Writing. He is a professor emeritus of the University of Tacoma at Puget Sound in Washington State, where he taught international political economy. And prior to that, he earned his PhD in economics from Purdue University. Today, he's known as the Wine Economist, and he joins me now from his home in Washington. Welcome, Mike. So great to have you back. Cheers, Natalie. It's wonderful to be back. All right. Yes, you've been on the podcast before, and we've talked on Facebook, so You are a repeat customer here, and there's a reason for that. You've got some really, really great stories to tell, so I'm keen to dive in. But before we do that, Mike, tell us, what is a wine economist? Oh, so if I were to tell you I was a real estate economist, then it would make sense that I would be looking at the supply and demand for real estate and what sets the price and what changes it. Or if I was a finance economist, you'd say, oh, you must worry about interest rates. And so wine economists are people who analyze the wine industry. So although we seldom refuse an offer of tasting wine, it is that economic backstory about the wine business that is on our mind. Incredibly, there are two organizations of wine economists. There is an American Association of Wine Economists that meets every year. They're meeting in Tbilisi in Georgia this summer. And then there's also a European Association of Wine Economists. So who knew that so many people found the wine business so interesting to study? I'll bet. And these people who meet for these conferences, are they mostly academics like yourself? And the answer is yes. 
there are increasingly some who work within the industry or people like me who go back and forth okay. in this. But these are in particular our academic organizations. And so, for example, the American Journal of Wine Economics, where uh, research studies are published. Wow. It's like a whole subculture. Reminds me of what do they have those conferences where everyone dresses up as their favorite character from an Avengers movie. Not that you're doing anything like that. I'm sure it's a whole lot more serious, but this is a whole other world that we don't know about. But your insights certainly help shape the wines we drink. So why were you attracted to this branch of wine or even of economics? Why did you decide to marry the two? I'll try to keep the story short. The longer story is that 40 years ago, when my wife and I were still pretty much newlyweds, we took a cheap vacation in Napa Valley. And so that tells you it was a long time ago because yes. there's nothing cheap in <laughs> no. Napa Valley anymore. <laughs> and on our last day, we had time for one more tasting. We stopped and the winemaker was there. And I tried to ask him my simple amateur questions about wine, but he found out that I am an economics professor. So he began to ask me really serious questions about what was going to happen to interest rates because he had borrowed a lot of money to plant vineyards. What was going to happen to the economy? Because three, four, five years from now, he hoped to be able to sell his fine wines at a high price. But if the economy tanked, well, then he'd have to cut corners and cut costs and so forth. The questions he was asking weren't amateur and they were very serious. And when I got back to our discount hotel in Santa Rosa, I realized that he had taught me that the things that I study are things that can be useful to people in the wine industry. Huh. Fascinating. I love that intersection. And oh, for the good old days of a cheap Napa vacation. Holy smokes. Oh, well, bygones. <laughs> <laughs> you published the first Wine Wars book back in, I think it was 2011, but correct me if that's not right. That's right. 10 years ago, 11. 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. And to wide critical acclaim, I mean, it had raving reviews and I love chatting about it with you. But in a nutshell, tell us what did this book cover and where did it leave off? Because it's going to lead us into your current book, of course. Oh, so the reason for the current book is that last year in 21, the 10th anniversary of Wine Wars, I decided it was time in pandemic lockdown mode to get out the book and read it again. And I read through the first chapter and I thought, well, yeah, I really like this. <laughs> Uh, you're an author, so you know you read your works over and over and over again. And if you still like it, well, that's a good sign. That is a really good sign. A really good sign. But I used to tell my thesis students that if they read the theses and they still liked them by the end, well, they hadn't read them enough for that. But anyway, <laughs> they needed more work. But as I read through it, I realized that on the one hand, the world of wine had changed. And on the other hand, I had changed in traveling around the world for the last dozen years, speaking to wine industry groups, not so much consumer groups, except but wine industry groups, that I'd actually learned a lot and I had some different things that I wanted to say. And so I put together the manuscript for Wine Wars too. And the basic argument in Wine Wars was the idea that there were three forces shaping global wine. And I gave them what I thought were clever names, but the first was globalization and globalization as both a creative force and a destructive force. And I gave that the name, the curse of the blue nun. Oh, okay. And this was in Wine Wars number one? Wine Wars one. Okay. Because the blue nun was one of the first global wine brands. And 
it both created markets for German wines, but after a while, the quality slipped. Right. And so it became almost a joke. And now it's changed hands and it has reinvigorated itself. But it shows that globalization can make you, but globalization can also break you. That's true. It became almost a joke wine at certain points, but they came back. They redid the label and everything. I thought it was less like a frumpy nun and more like Julie Andrews and, you know, Sound of Music. But they also improved the quality of the wine, I think. They did. That's absolutely the key. Which is key, yes. Because I don't know if it used to be just a white wine blend, but it went to Riesling, I think. I'm not sure. But of course, that's a signature grape of Germany. But it was known as Liebfrau mother's milk or something like that. That's right, which is, I don't want to offend any German producers, but I think of it as sort of a kitchen sink of white wines sometimes. It can be good, but that's not how you think of it. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So in the second force, globalization brings all of these wines to your doorstep, a confusion of wines, an embarrassment of riches, but a confusion. So one way that wine industry deals with that is by branding. And you try to give consumers trust to make that purchase by giving them a brand that they think they can trust. And so this was what I called the miracle of Two Buck Chuck. Ah, and tell us what Two Buck Chuck. Two Buck Chuck, that Fred Franzia's wine in the United States that still sells in some places for $2 a bottle. The miracle wasn't that you can make and sell a wine for $2 because there are economies of scale in doing that. The miracle is that people, consumers, who associate low price with low quality and high price with high quality, which isn't, certainly isn't always the case, the, the miracle is that they would buy it. And so Fred Franzia, and Trader Joe's gave millions of American consumers the confidence that they had lacked to try a bottle of wine. It's just a miracle. Awesome. And Trader Joe's being the grocery store chain in the United States. We don't have them up here, but somewhere between Costco and Whole Foods in the middle there. <laughs> that's right. Do you have Aldi stores? We don't. We don't have those either. No, but that's okay. Because one of the reveals that I have in both books is that at one point, the two brothers that own the German Aldi chain divided up the world. They had a disagreement about whether to sell tobacco products or not. So they Aldi North and Aldi South and divided the world. And they divided the U.S. And in the eastern United States, there are, I think, the Aldi North stores that you will find that are moving across. And they're very successful. And the other Aldi brother bought Trader Joe's. Ah, Okay. And so the Trader Joe's, as you say, we think of it as between Costco and something else, is a high quality, very high quality. I call it a surfer dude version of a German Aldi store in the United States. People love it. People are devoted. I like to say that if you had a $2 wine at a Kroger store, you would say, how can it be any good? And if you see a $2 wine at Trader Joe's, you say, how bad can it be? <laughs> That's a great way to position it. That's great. Is that part of the second trend or is that part of globalization? That's right. That's part of the branded goods part, the branded wine. And then those two economic forces, globalization, pushing wine ahead, branding as a solution to stand out in the crowd. I argue then, and I still think it's true, that then there's a pushback force that it meant to oppose the push force. And that's what I call the revenge of the terroirs, the people who find the commercialization of globalization 
and the commercialization of branding, they find this threatening to their idea of what they would like wine to be. And so they push back. And these days, this is something that I bring up in Wine Wars too. These days, for example, the natural wine movement would be an example of a pushback force. Yeah. And let's just define terroirists. It almost sounds like terrorists. (laughs) Sure. So terroir is the idea of the wine should be from a place. Terroir is what was it? Ben Lewin, the wine writer, said that it is typical French word, he said. It is both obvious and mystical, that natural products would be different depending on where they're grown, and so that wine would be different depending on where it's grown. And that's the terroir, and the terroirists are the people who see this as an important factor. Right. Okay. And among those terroirists, how do I get your mouth around that? The natural wine, the raw wine, and, you know, again, we're defining our terms here, but natural, I don't know what you think of it as. I think of it as low intervention, let the wine do its thing, let's not interfere. And that can be for good and bad. (laughs) Some people find those wines funky. Others find them a more natural expression. Raw is kind of, I think, on that similar spectrum of the winemaker not interfering with the way it's produced. That's right. And I see these the natural and raw wine, for example, is sort of at the extreme edge of the terroirs. Okay. But there, I think, are mainstream terroirs who simply seek out wines of place, where uh, to, to pick up an example of the people who may never think of themselves as terroirs. I have friends who love Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. And, you know, that's a distinctive wine. A Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire typically doesn't taste like that. And the, both of those places inject a sense of place, the fruitiness, the gooseberryness, and so forth of Marlboro, the minerality of the Loire. These wines that are available everywhere are wines that express themselves, their places in that way. And the people who seek out one versus the other, well, they have a little terroir blood in their veins. Huh, cool. Yeah, no, that's a great example. So, so much had changed. It had been a decade. You felt the need to update the book, which I can readily see. So what is Wine Wars 2 about? You're still on those three themes, but expanding them with modern examples? That's right. Yeah. On the one hand, bringing things up to date a bit, but also, for example, globalization has changed somewhat. And I try to look at that both in terms of the supply side of the changing market conditions of wine producers and sellers, but also the changing conditions of retail and wine buying and so forth. So for example, one part that people found very interesting in Wine Wars was looking at the statistical breakdown of wine consumers. What do wine consumers look for? Who are the wine consumers and how are they changing? And so among other things, I look at the Constellation brand studies, which have been so interesting. Constellation brands starting in the mid-aughts, about 2007 and 2008, they commissioned the Nielsen Company to do in-depth surveys of who buys wine in the United States. They called it Project Genome, which is sequencing the wine buyer's DNA. And so the initial study sort of divided up into five or six different groups that had different characteristics. Some were more women than men. Some bought more wine than other wine. And what was interesting is that Constellation brands almost immediately began to alter their portfolio of wines to take into account that maybe they were making some wines 
that were aimed at a market that didn't really interested in wines, that weren't going to go there. So they began to change. And then they commissioned this again, a follow-up study, where they went one level deeper in it, where the consumers didn't just tell people what they did, but they actually scanned everything that they bought so that we could actually not just see what people say they like, but what they actually purchased, which is it's really the gold standard of a survey like that. So this then breaks it down. And then one more iteration of it that captured some more of the millennials, for example, right, and the younger people. And so this gives us sort of a rich idea that there isn't a wine consumer, but gosh, there are a lot of people who react in different ways to this embarrassment of riches of wines that is presented to us. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that study sounds like it really dug deeper than just purely demographics and got into psychographics. So not just women ages 40 to 60, but you know, people who tend to purchase the frequency or whatever, which may, as you said, have a mix of factors. Yeah, that's right. And Constellation, once again, has shifted its wines. You know, it sold off a lot of its portfolio to Gallo, You're right. for example. You're right. And this was part of reconfiguring itself to focus on what they saw as the most profitable and highest growth and part of the wine market. That is interesting because they sold off a lot of major brands like Ravenswood. And they weren't brands that I considered to be low end, but I guess just on a balance sheet basis, they weren't profitable, as you say. It's focusing on, you know, there are some businesses where they say, I want each of my products to be in the top three globally. And if it's something that's only number five globally, well, I'm going to sell it so that I can focus on the ones that have the highest potential impact. And so, for example, Ravenswood, which I think is over the years, that's been a reliable Zinfandel. I've enjoyed oh, those yeah. wines. It's a terrific wine. But the Prisoner, right? You can see the Prisoner with that much higher selling point. And so the Prisoner is actually, I have a chapter now in Wine Wars 2, where I look at the development of brands. And I sort of plot through some of the most powerful brands over a period of time. And The Prisoner is one of them that I analyze. The Prisoner, was it a creation of these studies? Like, did they create that brand based on these studies? And the answer is no. Okay. The Prisoner started with Dave Finney, who is a famous winemaker, really well known for creating his own brands and so forth. You've seen the label of The Prisoner. I've tried it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the label shows a Goya print that shows this contorted person. It's a really uncomfortable looking image on it. And it was called The Little Prisoner. And I guess when Dave was 12 years old, he asked for and received a copy of this Goya print for his birthday. What a bizarre child. <laughs> Sorry. We all have dark moments and maybe he saw something out of it. But so he created this wine and put that label on it. And then it, because he spins off brands, after actually having a good run, critical acclaim, good sales, he wanted to focus on something else. So he sold it off to a Napa Valley wine family and they built the brand some more and then finally sold it off for hundreds of thousands of dollars to Constellation. And what was interesting in that is that they didn't sell vineyards because all of the grapes were contracted. Ah. They didn't sell a winery because it was made in a custom crush facility. Huh. What they sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars 
was the intellectual property of the brand. Wow. Now, Constellation has associated that brand with some of their own vineyards. They've actually built out a winery and tasting room. So you can, there was one of the, it was actually a, wine, a different winery before. And you can now go to Napa and you can visit the prisoner. And I think you have sort of a lockup experience. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I guess we don't know because people visit and they never come back. They never come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you it must be a beautifully designed winery if they're keeping on brand. Oh yeah, they are. They're, and then of course they've spun off some other brands that go with it. We recently saw, if I've forgotten the name of it now, but a, a sort of $20 tier wine that goes with it. And then they have this wine Saldo, S-A-L-D-O, which is a Zinfandel huh. that's there. So anyway, it's interesting how brands get built. In this same chapter, I have a section that I call Welcome to the Brand Factory. Ah. Because I discovered that there are businesses are there, Natalie, if you want to create your own Natalie McLean wine, they are there for you. They will design the label and the packaging. They will source the wine from anywhere in the world. They seem to have connections, especially with cooperatives huh. all around the world. So they can have the wine made to your specification, have it bottled, have it packaged, have it marketed. This must be how celebrities often get it done, too. That's right, yeah. So there are factories now that do this. It's, I won't say it's out of control, but it's the part of the wine business that we don't see when we stand at a wine shop and look at those attractive labels. So with all of this brand building and brand making, do you think that is losing in those wines, in the creation of those brands? Is wine losing its soul? Is that what you're getting at? For that? Well, it certainly risks losing its soul because it becomes about the imaging more than the wine itself. It becomes, as you say, with at least some celebrity wines, I think are good wines. And some celebrity wines are just about the celebrity. And it could be from anywhere. It could be made by anyone. It could come out of a big tank, but it might be made in a very... I actually got into trouble a couple of years ago. Gerard Breton is famous in France as a winemaker, but also he's even more famous as a rugby player. You know, he played on the national rugby team. And so he's a big guy. I'm not a small guy, but he's bigger than I am. And so I came up to him and I said, you know, Gerard, when I first heard about your wines, I thought that, that this was just celebrity wine, just could be from anywhere. And then he rose up, yawn. <laughs> but of course, then I tasted the wines and this was an honest thing. And many of the wines are so expressive of place. There were some of the very best wines that I had had when we toured through the south of France. And he had done so much to preserve. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> got to be careful yeah, when yeah. you talk to a celebrity about wines. <laughs> you just might get tackled and taken <laughs> down, literally. But yeah, he really also focuses on the different pockets of land within the southern French region. I mean, it's huge, but he will name different regions on his labels. So he is very much about terroir and place. He is. Yeah. He absolutely is. And then, of course, he makes the wine for that diving into Hampton oh, Water. Oh, yeah, Hampton the, Water. Uh, bon Jovi. Yes, that's right. So he does do a celebrity wine. Yeah, so he makes the wine for them. So he has his toe in the celebrity wine business, too. It's true. He's got it both ways. But that rosé is beautiful. It may be a celebrity wine, but it is one of the ones I think that is well-made. But just one more question on the constellation studies. 
as a result of this whole genome, did they create a brand? Like they sold off brands and so consolidated their businesses. But do you know, to your knowledge, did they create a brand that was suited toward this new genome type that they discovered? To be honest, no, I don't think they did. I think what they did is they found other brands that they believe were underinvested brands that they thought that they could build up. For example, I'm located here in Washington State, and Charles Smith of Kung Fu Girl Wines, for example, is located here, not so far, the main winery is not so far from here, actually. And this is the Charles Smith wines, are wines that they looked at and they said, well, you know, Charles Smith has been very successful, but we can be even more successful building out these lines of Washington Rieslings and Merlot and Syrah. And so they came in and once again, they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to Charles Smith. And it's not for the vineyards because the wines are made with grapes from some of the same vineyards as before, contract vineyards, and not for the winery because the contract winery that was there, but for the brands that they thought that they could make even more successful than Charles Smith has. Wow. And what's one of the most successful brands you've seen recently? Maybe you talked about The Prisoner. Is there another one that comes to mind? It doesn't have to be Constellations. So it's not sort of globally successful, but in terms of being very successful at doing what it wants to do, there is a brand that comes from Red Mountain in Washington State. I write about it in Wine Wars too. It's called Secret Squirrel. (laughs) Okay, how'd that come to be? (laughs) On the label... It has a cartoon of a squirrel in a party mask like this, <laughs> you know, and you look at it and just go, oh, you know, it sells for about 25 to $30 in this. And it's secret squirrel, this, the wine is excellent. It over delivers for the price, but the brand was created to appeal to millennials to people who are maybe on the weekend, they're not going to have wine every night of the week, but on the weekend, they're very happy to have a little more expensive bottle of wine than they might have if they were to do that. They don't take themselves too seriously, so they don't want wine that takes itself too seriously. Everybody loves secrets. Who can resist a squirrel? (laughs) And so there were some designers and marketing people involved in creating the brand, but I actually know the winemakers pretty well. They didn't cut any corners to make the wine. They used the state grapes, for example, to make it. And, and so this has been very successful. And after the owner told me, well, this is why we did all of this. I was walking down the street in Walla Walla, Main Street in Walla Walla. In Washington, yeah. I looked around and sure enough, there were tables out on the sidewalk of young people with bottles of secret squirrel that they were enjoying. You know, they really did. It's in the same way that a very successful wine is that Australian wine, 19 Crimes. Oh, yes. That's been a huge marketing thing. Like it's got holograms of the stories of all these prisoners. And so does it exist or is it just a virtual brand as well? Oh, you know, it does exist. It's made by Treasury Wine Estates in Australia, but it was created specifically to be attractive to Millennial males. Huh. Okay. You've tasted it. To my palate, and I'm an economist, not a wine taster, but to my palate, it's kind of sweet and tannic. Yeah, it is sweet. I joke, but it's not a joke, that I liked it better on ice and that maybe on crushed ice would be my preferred way 
to drink it. Sure. But I mean, I'm not suggesting anyway. And the marketing there, the 19 crimes, we think about young men, maybe young men who say, I don't need no stinking badge. I don't need no stinking wine spectator to tell me what to drink. You know, so I want to break the rules a little bit. And here's this sad man on the label, this sad prisoner. I feel sad sometimes. Not as sad as the prisoner, you know, where I'm contorted in that. Sure. But it was actually been very successful. I gave a talk about this and a woman came up to me afterward and said, well, you know, when I go to parties with my boyfriend, it does seem like those young men are drinking that wine all the time, that 19 crimes. Yeah, they have some women on the label now too. I guess they're trying to expand into millennial women. <laughs> That's right. No, I, the Chardonnay was the first one of that. And I guess Snoop Dogg. Oh, and Martha Stewart. That's, a, I've heard, is a good one. I haven't tasted it, her Chardonnay. People are saying it's actually a good Chardonnay. Have you tried it? No, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, especially with her, she cares about her brand, but... I think she has some experience as a prisoner. <laughs> yeah, so it's an authentic story. You're right. Yeah, I wasn't putting that all together, but yeah, it's kind of like a bit of a winking nod to her total experience, branding and prisoning <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, but... That is incredible. So in terms of Wine Wars 2, what else has changed in the last 10 years? You've talked about the branding. What else is coming to the fore in this book? In the end, in the part where I talk about the revenge of the Terroirists, one of the things I do is in, the, in each of my wine books, I end up talking about China at some point because okay. I'm just fascinated with China and what's going on there. And so... I have a chapter that's now called Silk Road Terroir Yeasts, that when we visited Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, just Georgia, there was just a lot of Chinese investment that was going on because it was part of the Belt and Road Program that Georgia signed a free trade agreement with China, that there are over 300 Georgia wine houses in China where Georgian wine is sold along with Georgian culture and so on. So there's a surprising link there. And so I, I tried to use that link to think about, are there any terroirs in China with so on? So, so to make a long story short, Georgia is sort of the ultimate terroir place because not only does everybody drink wine, but almost all families make their own wine. Yeah, and it's the seat of ancient winemaking too, with the clay vessels and the whole orange wines and all the rest of it. Exactly right. Exactly. So it goes back six, 7,000 years. The Gaveris are still being used. We were visited in the fall. And as we drove to the airport, the gas stations and stuff by the side of the road were selling huge flexi tanks, big flexi tanks for home wine production using that same kind of technique. It is interesting that so much wine is made and consumed at home that it's actually hard to sell wine in Georgia. Because you're competing with grandpa's wine or Uncle George's wine. My friends in Georgia are often named George. So anyway, they've had good success. So that if there are terroir yeasts, Georgia probably is a good place to look. So I went looking for terroir yeasts in China. And of course, on the one hand, you've got some sort of problematic ones. There's this Chinese wine you've tasted, and I'm sure, all young. Oh, I haven't actually, no. Ao Young is actually made in Shangri-La 
It's made in the Tibetan foothills at elevation of about 7,000 feet. Oh, wow. It's made by Moe Hennessy, Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy. Sells in the U.S. for about $250 a bottle. Holy smokes. It reflects some of the highest mountain vineyards in the world. Wow. Is it made by Tibetan monks? No, not by Tibetan, because it's a French project. Okay. I tell a story in the book about two friends of mine who went looking for it. And they got there and they couldn't get into the winery. And they were so disappointed because the winery's not set up. It's the end of a goat track, more or less. Uh, winery's not set up for <laughs> visitors or anything like that. It's just a production facility. Problematic because of everything that's going on? Well, not literally at the end of a goat track, but it was apparently a huge challenge to build out. The vineyards in that area had actually been established by French priests a hundred years ago and nurtured along those lines. But they had to build out a winery with the cooperation of the local government, of course. It always is the case in, in China. So our friends, when they tried to get into the winery, we were so disappointed. So they got directions to a little guest house. And dusk was falling, the lights had gone, they opened it up, and there were friends from Australia and Argentina and France. It was this homecoming for them because they were all there working on the project. At that point, I wondered, well, who is Chinese wine for? Is Chinese wine for the Chinese or is Chinese wine for this global audience? It reflects a terroir. It certainly does have a distinctive acidity. It's a nice mountain wine. So maybe there aren't terroir yeast in China. But then there are other wines. Briefly, I sort of looked through three different wines that I've been able to taste over the years that were make me believe in Chinese terroir yeasts. Uh, the last one was Marcelon from Grace Vineyard. Is this in China? Yeah, Grace Vineyard in China. It was one of the very first quality wine producers. In Wine Wars, I talked about how they were able to make so much better quality wine in China than before. The very first Chinese wine I had, I won't give the brand name, but I'll give the tasting note. Ashtray, Ugh. coffee ground, yeah. urinal crust. Oh dear. Because it had enormous volatile acidity. Yeah. That group of us tasted it. And we had to taste it again and again because we just couldn't believe it. Wow. And then I tasted one of the Grace Vineyards wine. And wow, you know, it was terrific. And it was because Judy Chan and her family were able to actually take control of the vineyards and to produce quality grapes. And of course, quality grapes or quality wine really begins. And so the Marcelin. Yeah. For Chinese wine, I guess it is problematic these days, given all the economics and politics and human rights issues. So do you think that the Chinese are just making the wines for themselves or are they really wanting to export? Well, at this point, I think that there are some attempts at export. And if you're in Paris or in London, you'll find more Chinese wines than you will find here. I can find a few Chinese wines at Asian markets, for example. But really, the potential domestic market is so big. It is, yeah. That that's where they're thinking. The investment is that way. And as China comes out of the lockdown, it seems like I've heard very recently that Chinese consumers are turning more toward their own wines. The Australian wines are kept out now by the huge tariffs. They have over 200% tariffs on Australian wines. 
French wines, France is number two. Chile is number one right now. They're going there. But consumers are, are beginning to think about supporting their own wine industry even more, which I think is terrific. Sure. Yeah. And that's part of terroir Easts as well, like that you drink local. Drink local and think that there are um, distinctive flavors that are appropriate to China, that are familiar to Chinese, that maybe aren't familiar to Americans or US or Canada or Europeans. And so I, I'd love to see a wine industry develop along those lines. Oh, that's terrific. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Mike. Here are my takeaways. Number one, I found it interesting how globalization at one end of the spectrum and the terroirists at the other end are having a profound impact on the style and type of wines we drink now. Two, Mike gives us great insights into what a wine economist does. And three, the wine industry and buyers have changed so much in the past 10 years. In the show notes, you'll find my email contact, a full transcript of my conversation with Mike, links to his website and books, and where you can find the live stream video version of these conversations on Facebook and YouTube Live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. You'll also find a link to my free online class called Five Food and Wine Pairing Mistakes That Can Ruin Your Dinner and How to Fix Them Forever. That's all in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 188. Email me if you have a sip, tip, question, or want to be a beta reader of my new memoir at natalie at nataliemclean.com. You won't want to miss next week when we continue our chat with Mike. In the meantime, if you missed episode 21, go back and take a listen. I chat about whether wine is the source of civilization with author John Mahoney. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. Who was the first person that made wine? I was taught that civilization had established itself from, say, Babylon or Egypt. We go back to the time of Christ, that's 2,000 years, everything else is B.C., and everybody thought that wine was 3,000. Then they said, well, no, it's probably four, even 5,000 years old. But two places established that that was incorrect, the University of Toronto and the University of Pennsylvania. Both of them did research and found out that it's well over three, four, five thousand years old. They've proven and actually have done scientific testing to prove that wine production is probably seven and a half to eight thousand years old. Wow. My research took it further, and I'm saying that we started with wine right after the last ice age. If you like this episode, please tell one friend about it this week especially someone you know who'd be interested in the wines and stories we discussed. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your class this week, perhaps a wine from a region you've not tried yet. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemclean.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.